Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We are now approaching the one year mark of the Ukraine war, month and a half, two months away, I guess, month and a half away from the anniversary of when Russia invaded. And there are new reports and more of them suggesting that Vladimir Putin is beginning to lose his grip on power in Russia. Now, not technically, he's still in charge, but that public relations wise, he is not selling the war very well to the people that mothers of killed soldiers are making it very clear how unhappy they are. There are stories that there could be coups brewing in the background that some of his associates are preparing to make a move. There's even talk of a plan to shuttle him out of Russia if things got too heated and land him in a safe haven somewhere in South America. I want to bring in Elliot Tepper. He is a professor emeritus at Carleton University in political science, joins us now. Uh, Thank you very much for doing this tonight. Oh, good afternoon, Scott. Any of this sound uh, reasonably credible, or is this the kind of thing that as a unpopular war drags on, the world press are becoming hopeful, and so they write this kind of stuff? Yes, the, I think the rumors of uh, Mr. Putin's demise are exaggerated. Um, the, the fact that we're talking about it, however, does suggest there has been reason to be concerned, uh, Mr. Putin, that is, that things aren't going his way and he has, to, uh, he has to shore up his flank. But there's no visible reason to think that the Sivaliki, that the Sivaliki, the, the, the inner core around him, which includes his defense minister and the president of the Duma and others and people who came with him from uh, Leningrad, uh, St. Petersburg, the people who have been with him all along and who are closest to him and therefore actually have access to him, uh, they're apparently fiercely loyal. What would, ha- I mean, I don't know that we even know the answer to this question, but what would have to happen for a coup to take place there? Because I, I have to believe that, I mean, our leaders here are reasonably well protected there. It would be, I would think, almost impossible to get to him. Yes. I, again, the people immediately around him and who have access to him are, uh, in his own mind, in any event, so loyal that <clears throat> he doesn't have to worry about that. The, um, nobody's going to offer him a cup of tea mm. and uh, <laughs> get near him with a, an umbrella that's poisoned. There's also the other side of this. It's assumed that if somehow he did disappear through natural or other causes, that his successor was, would automatically be somebody that would call an end to the war, that would be pro-West, that would apologize to right. the troops out of Ukraine. There's no particular reason to think that. Uh, the people around him are uh, like-minded. The uh, one of the changes in the war, is, as you pointed out, it's gone on and there's now dissension of sorts. The intra-elite conflict and the junkie, jockeying for influence is becoming more, more and more uh, visible. Uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, is openly criticizing in ways that you and I can hear the generals who are conducting the war. The warlord in, ch- in charge of Chechnya criticizes everybody. The possibility that there are people seeing a potential power vacuum and are trying to increase their their own levers of support as Mr. Putin becomes more isolated, that's a more realistic possibility than a coup. But, of course, coups often catch us by surprise, and we only say afterward it was obvious. We have seen 
previously in Russian, well, Soviet, really, uh, times in our lifetime, most of us, uh, when perestroika happened, that there was a leader and then all of a sudden someone else filled that vacuum and decided that he was going to take the country in a very different direction. Is there anybody that we have seen on the Russian horizon that would appear to be of that mind? Or is there any way that we would expect that that kind of person could get the levers of power there? There are certainly opposition figures. Uh, Navalny, of course, is in prison. Uh, there's a number of other less well-known opposition leaders who are in, in prison or in exile. Uh, read names like Kordogovsky, who was, who was an oligarch. And this was a message, by the way, oligarchs have grown up in Russia due to Mr. Putin's permission and cooperation and sponsorship. If you cross him, he has a way to get, to get rid of you. Well, another one just I'm died in the last told. day or two, right? Pardon? Another oligarch just died in the last day or two, yes, I read. There's been a, a number of mysterious yes. uh, um, suicides by jumping out of the window <laughs> after killing entire yes. families and so forth. So the possibility of a coup uh, by those immediately around him does not seem possible, and the people who aren't immediately around him don't have the access to make it happen. There is a very intriguing report, and again, I have no idea whether to give this any credibility, but it sure sounds interesting. Uh, It sort of harkens back to World War II with the Nazis at the end of the war all getting into the boats and sailing off to South America somewhere. There's a a story that there is a plan in place called Noah's Ark, which would allow Putin to escape to Venezuela if things get too heated in Russia. Again, is there... Does that's in, in, that was okay, I guess, in 1944 when we didn't have social media, we didn't have cameras, we didn't have a small world like we do now. Could anyone possibly, could he possibly do that and do it secretly? I think more interesting is the fact that that kind of conspiracy theory is floating around and people are start, have reason to think there might be credence to it because Mr. Putin is, is isolated. But in terms of what is more likely and most plausible, uh, it, the, the conspiracy theories themselves are a symptom of the problem that he's in, not a, a course of action imminent in the future that anybody can actually foresee in a practical way. I think we should probably talk about what's happening now that puts him in this position. Mr. Putin is is uh, all these conspiracy theories, and yes, there's definite jockeying for influence and power around him now, uh, as we just talked about. But the reason that's happening is because the war has gone so disastrously, and what's going to happen Next in the war really is the determining factor for Mr. Putin. He really is got all in on this. He either wins or he loses, and he knows that. So I think the possibility that the Russians, and this is the speculation, informed speculation, the Russians are planning some kind of a major counterattack against Ukraine, keeping in mind that this, this blitz that we're seeing now of missiles and drones, which are taking out the, uh, the, the power infrastructure as winter settles in Ukraine. All of that is terrible and going on. But the possibility there's something more major or a different kind of an attack is uh, increasingly the, the chatter going on right now. There's a meeting going on with uh, pro- proposed in a few days between the leader of Belarus uh, and, and Mr. Putin is going to physically go there. There's some thought that there might even be another attack on Kiev coming out of Belarus and, uh, and uh, go back to plan A, eliminate the capital city, and then continue on to victory. Also, there's, uh, within the Donbass region, there's an area right now that the Russians are really pushing hard on. At the same time, Ukraine is pushing very hard to sever the connection in the the Donbass 
between the North and the South, if they can break that, the notion by the Ukrainians are that you can, the, the Russian army will collapse all the way in Kherson, mm. breaking that and then opening up a possibility of even attacking or moving on to Crimea. So this war is by no means over. There's a definite possibility um, the Russians, the Ukrainians tell us this, should not be underestimated. Something major may still be happening. And meanwhile, General Winter and General Mudd will become increasingly yeah. factors in how this war proceeds. Did I not see, and we've only got a second here, did I not see something in the last day or two, though, where Russia sort of displayed some of its l- ballistic missiles uh, as sort of a, a PR move to flex the muscles to remind everybody of what they're capable of? They're doing a number of things. Uh, These meetings of all the joint, uh, the top people conducting this war are now in touch visibly with Mr. Putin, who shows up at the command center, which he's been avoiding, and then he's going off to, as I say, to Belarus. So there's a lot of effort to show we are still in charge, and the opinion polls and the articles which are talking about conspiracy theories and coups say, well, he's only down to 79% support Mm -hmm. in public. Uh, So there's... This war is by no means over. Mr. Putin is isolated. He has nowhere to go except to victory. And that's, uh, and that's of course, uh, being opposed by everybody, including Canada. So this, we're entering a dangerous phase of the war. And I do have to up. run. I do have to run, but I just I have to ask then, do, is there in your mind, is there any possibility, any realistic possibility, unless he's on a suicide mission, is there any possibility he uses nuclear weapons in this? Yes, I think there is a possibility, and it's not just me saying this. There's, there's uh, obviously the Americans are there trying to get the message through. They sent the head of the CIA to meet his counterpart to deliver the message. You don't do this. There's always the possibility that a desperate leader will take a desperate action in order to not lose or to stay in power, or if necessary, to go down on a pyrrhic victory. It is. Um you know, we like to believe some of these stories and hope that they're true. And then uh, reality, I think, is uh, a little more scary than that. Uh, Elliot Tepper from Carleton University. We love having you on here. Thank you for doing this tonight. Oh, thank you, Scott. It's good to be with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know if, uh, if I was to do a quiz of everybody listening and I was to say, all right, who served as prime minister of this country for the shortest amount of time? I don't know, or even the second shortest. I don't know that anybody would come up with the name off the top of their head. And even if they did, they may not naturally then say, you know what, that seems like a good person to write a book about. Well, my next guest did exactly that with the second shortest serving, I believe, prime minister in this country. Uh, His name, not the prime minister, the writer, is Steve Pakin, the host of The Agenda on TV Ontario, Hamilton Guy. Joins us now. Steve, how are you today? I am great. And you've asked the exact right question, which is who wants to write a book about the second shortest serving prime minister of all time? Well, I hope by the time we're finished talking, I'll have made the case for why it was worth doing. So the person we're talking about is John Turner. Um, Only Sir Charles Tupper served fewer. He said John Turner was only prime minister for two months, give or take a little bit more than that. Why Why write about a guy like that? Because his life was so much more than just those 79 days that he spent in the prime minister's office. And I think that's one of the, you know, he died uh, two years and two months ago, two years and three months ago. And I I was persuaded by a number of people who were his colleagues that there was a lot more to this man's story than simply the very short time he spent as prime minister. And um, the more I looked into it, the more I thought, you know what, you guys are right. And it's a story I want to tell. 
before we get to him, you've written other books on on politicians, on leaders, on well-known people. Um, Bill Davis, of course, you wrote about uh, John Robarts. Uh, you wrote about, did you not have involvement with them that you could interview them? Like, did you get a chance to interview John Turner for this or talk to him for this? Well, because I made the decision to write the book after he had died, we didn't do any specific interviews for the book. But I knew Mr. Turner since he got back into public life in 1984. And as a result, I've done sort of, I've had numerous conversations with him over the years. And I guess I should start by saying for, for some of your listeners who are younger, John Turner was like this country's John F. Kennedy. You know, he got into public life a year after Kennedy became president. He was young like Kennedy. He was a great looking guy like Kennedy. He was the choice of the next generation. He then, you know, served important roles in Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau's cabinet. But then he quit in 1975, went to the private sector for a decade. And I guess a lot of people thought that was it. But in 1984, he came back into public life. And that's when my relationship with him started because I, I met him at that uh, liberal leadership convention. And then when he got out of politics, uh, again, almost 10 years later, uh, we became friends in his post-political life. So that was it was a lot of those conversations that I drew upon, uh, not to mention interviews with his family, not to mention uh, having access to his private papers in the archives, which no one else has seen. All of that together, I thought, made for a great story. And when you say about how he was our version sort of of John F. Kennedy, I mean, different time, of course, late 60s, early 70s. But had that been now, I mean, he, you're talking he would have been the guy that we would have social media would have either loved or hated TMZ kind of thing. I mean, he was like he was dancing with princesses and doing all this. Like, he, he, <laughs> was, he was a guy that in his own way at that time was getting lots of buzz, correct? Well, for sure. And and let's remember, his life started very tragically. He was born in England, and his father died because of a botched operation on the operating table when John Turner was only two years old. Hmm. And, and his mother had also lost a baby as well. Baby was born, had complications, and then died almost immediately thereafter. So the mother, his poor mother, had all of this tragedy of losing a husband and a child in very short order. So moved the family to British Columbia, where she was from, and started all over again. Now, you, you might think, you know, that's... That, that's really starting life behind the eight ball. But his mother was a brilliant woman, incredibly talented, worked her way up to being the highest ranking female civil servant in the whole country. And as a result, John Turner knew a lot of people in and around politics as he grew up in Ottawa, where uh, Mrs. Um, Turner eventually moved the family. And uh, as a result, you know, her second marriage, which came many years later, was to a man who became the lieutenant governor of British Columbia. And it was in that context that Princess Margaret visited on a royal tour to B.C. And uh, John Turner's stepfather asked his stepson, could you please chaperone uh, Her Majesty around a bit? Uh, and um, you're right. Tongues wagged and there was lots of gossip I, and it made all the papers. I guess that was part that got cut out of the, the royals the or the crown, the show on Netflix. That's on the cutting room floor. We'll get that in the director's cut. We'll see the uh, the John Turner edition. But this is what's really interesting to me about you choosing to write about him, but also about his place in this country. As I was thinking about your book, uh, he ran against Trudeau for the leadership of the Liberals back in 68, correct? It could have been him or Trudeau that won? Well, he he came third. Uh, okay. A guy that almost nobody remembers, Bob Winters, is right, the guy okay. who actually Trudeau beat on the last ballot. 
But had John, I, I can't think of, from what I know of John Turner, which is far less than you, I can't think of someone who struck me as more different than Pierre Trudeau. And I, I started wondering how different our country would be today, all these years later, if John Turner had won that liberal leadership showdown and then become prime minister rather than Pierre Trudeau back then. Well, it's one of the great imponderables, isn't it? Always the road not taken. Uh, in some respects, they were they had similarities. They're both actually, you know, it's funny. If you ask people who was the Rhodes Scholar, Pierre Trudeau or John Turner, most people would guess Trudeau because he was the cerebral intellectual type. In fact, it was Turner. Hmm. Turner was a pretty smart student. Uh, you know, as I say, uh, went to University of British Columbia, became a Rhodes Scholar, went to Oxford, uh, went to a university in France after that. So it was fluently bilingual uh, by the 1950s when he came back to eventually stand for parliament. Um you know, Trudeau had this whole, you know, intellectual vibe about him. So people thought that he was this the smarter guy. But in fact, uh, John Turner was hardly any slouch in that department. I guess the biggest difference between the two of them was John Turner had, you know, while he certainly had his social justice side, um, he was also part of what could be called, you know, the Liberal Party back then had a social justice wing and it had a, a sort of a business wing. And Turner got on just fine with the business wing of the Liberal Party in a way that Pierre Trudeau did not. So had Trudeau won that 68 convention, you can assume that that the Liberal Party and the Liberal government of the day would have cared more about deficits, would have cared more about economic growth, uh, would have had a different orientation in as much as being from British Columbia, uh, John Turner would have had a Western sensibility that he could have brought to the job that, you know, prime ministers who are overwhelmingly from southern Ontario or Quebec uh, would not have brought to the job. So you might have had a more national view mm. of the country. And given as well, Scott, God, he loved to canoe up in the northernmost parts of Canada. He'd take his family on canoe trips um, further than any non-Indigenous people in this in the history of this country had ever been. And uh, as a result, he knew the North very well as well. So it's a great question. And it does, it does make you think about how differently the last many years might have been uh, had he won that 68 convention instead of Trudeau. Did Trudeau actually then beat John Turner twice in a sense because he beat him in that convention? But then when Turner finally becomes leader, it's in the wake. It's right at the end of the Trudeau era when, you know, the the, the, the it, they were due for a pounding, right? And 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 that's what they got. And and Mulroney comes in afterwards. Did did Trudeau basically guarantee that Turner was never going to end up being a long term prime minister? I can't say guarantee because, you know, it is, after all, the responsibility of the person who succeeds the outgoing leader to put a fresh coat of paint on things. So it's not really Trudeau's responsibility to do that. It's Turner's. And there was this moment at this at the 84 leadership convention. This is after Turner has come back from 10 years in the private sector. And he's now uh, answered the call of many liberals to please come rescue our party. We're desperately unpopular. Pierre Trudeau has, you know, although he had his successes, obviously, uh, he's incredibly unpopular right now, and we really need you, John, to to give up your your you know high paying job as a lawyer and corporate director, and and you know rebuild the Liberal Party and, and keep us in power. There was this odd moment at the convention after Turner won. He got up there to give his speech, and then of course the thing that you do, I mean, what the moment calls for is the outgoing leader to then go up to the incoming leader. And thrust his heart, his you know, hand up into the air, and the two of them sort of, you know, bring the old and the right. new together, and the party unifies. Well, there was that moment in '84 in June in Ottawa, and I was there and I watched it. And Pierre Trudeau came forward to accept the applause as the outgoing leader, 
And instead of saying, you know, instead of going over to John Turner and thrusting his arm in the air and saying, we're all going forward together, he didn't do anything. He just turned around and walked back into line. And it was an <laughs> awkward moment. And it kind of cursed, apropos of your question, it kind of cursed John Turner from the get-go because it really did show that the Liberal Party was divided. There was this whole Turner wing now versus the Trudeau wing. And that never stopped, actually, Scott, until Justin Trudeau became the leader of the Liberal Party on a platform of basically no more Turner liberals, no more Martin liberals, no more Kretchen liberals, no more Trudeau liberals. We're just liberals. But it started in 84 at that convention. We got 30 seconds left. Unfortunately, I wish we had a lot more time. But was Turner, you said you've talked to him over the years um, afterwards. Was he ever sour about the fact that he never really got his chance to be prime minister in any meaningful way? Amazingly not. The great thing about John Turner was that he desperately believed in participating in democracy, and he knew it was a long shot to come back into power uh, in 1984 and, and be able to keep the liberals in power. And amazingly enough, he always thought, I did my duty, I did what I was asked to do, and no regrets. And he believed that to his dying day. Uh, the book is called John Turner, an intimate biography of Canada's 17th prime minister. It's not that long. It's not war and peace, but it will take you almost as long to read it as it took him to be, or as he was in the office of the prime minister. Um, Steve Bacon, really, uh, TV and Tara, Steve Bacon from the agenda. Really appreciate the time as always. Thanks for doing this. Not at all, Scott. Good talking to you again. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It is uh, Monday evening. It is Monday at seven o'clock. That means it is time to welcome in our good friend, Don Robertson, the guy who runs the Dundas Real McCoys and Calm Choice Realty, and frankly, many things in Dundas. Uh, he joins us now. Don, how are you tonight? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I am well. Are you, uh, are you still buzzing and vibrating with excitement from the last, uh, from the World Cup championship game yesterday? Uh, it seems to be vibrating the entire planet. Um, I, I've devibrated, um, <laughs> although I, that's good. I'm a little excited. I'm a little excited on your comment that you allow your wife to do the Christmas shopping that, that, that created a bit of a buzz for me because you'll probably get straightened out when uh, you meet her again shortly. Um, but yeah, no, it seemed like it was a real big deal. I mean, you know, soccer is not my first sport because we only played it at recess in school. And there were no soccer pitches around when I was a kid, at least out in the country. Linda didn't have any, and neither, neither did the other small towns. So, But, boy, you can sure see. I'm not convinced it's the beautiful game, but, boy, it is the big game on the planet because every country plays it, and we're playing catch-up. But you can see, sure see how it moves the sports needle in the entire mm. planet. It's, it's, it's a world sport. It, it is. And when I said I allow, mostly because I didn't want to make it sound like I force her to go out and do the shopping, which would sound almost worse. There's really no good way to answer this one, is there? I make her do the shopping or I allow her. Either way, I look like the bad guy. Anyway, whatever it is. She likes it. So there we go. Um, yeah, Let me it, know when you get to the bottom of the hole. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it, it is. I, there were pictures that I saw yesterday after the game. Um, from Buenos Aires, uh, the main square in Argentina yesterday during, and then after the game, and y y you could not see anything but people. 
I mean, it was amazing. There were, I mean, the buildings, but between all the buildings, every inch of ground was covered in people and celebrating. And, and you know, they also showed the video or the pictures along the Champs-Élysées in Paris. And it was like that, except vacated immediately, essentially, immediately. It is, it is amazing to me, not surprising, but amazing to me, as you say, just the, the passion that is around the world for this. And I'm, as I say, I'm not surprised, Don, because you're right. Every, it is played. I would think the only sport that you could say would be played more in the world would be just running because everybody who is able to has run a race at some time in their life, has had a foot race with someone, but second would be kicking a ball around. Well, and I don't think you see the world excitement over a running race, uh, although I'll grant it that if, if we're calling running a sport, which it is, then we've all, almost everyone on the planet has ran. Not everyone on the planet has ran and kicked the ball. But, I, you know, here's an observation, and I'll ask you, because you're a pretty clever guy. Um, is it me, or, or am I missing something? Do... Other countries have more passion for their sports than we do. Like, they break into crying. I mean, it is such an emotional time for a country to do so well in a sporting event compared to, uh, like, if Canada won the World Cup, which is a a real mind-bender at this point, but if they had, I don't think you'd see the outpouring of love and this pure emotion of the French who, you know, I guess rightfully so, so sulked away and went, wow, didn't like that, that income or outcome sucked. But the passion in almost every country in the world over soccer and other sports, I don't think we share that passion. I think NFL fans get mad if the Bills lose and, you know, maybe tip a table over. But you never see them crying when they win to the extent you do like Argentina yesterday. I would suggest that, now, I I was very young at the time. Uh, You were very young at the time. But you may have to go back to 1972 to see that kind of reaction. And I suspect that there would have been, had Canada lost that series, there might have been some people crying. I don't know if they would have cried. It's, it's, it, it is interesting. And your, your point about would we react that way? If Canada somehow, let's say in the next 25 years, Canada picks up the pace and, and becomes a world power in soccer and we're somehow playing in a World Cup championship game. I mean, it's, it's very unlikely, but let's say it happens. You're right. Would people be jumping around celebrating like we're at a football game, a, a North American football game, or would we be crying and weeping? And I can't see it. I, I think it's just a, it's a different cultural thing. And there's nothing right or wrong with either one. I just I don't think it's the way we do it. I don't think we share it. I mean, I'm not a kissy huggy guy at any point in time for anything other than getting married but like it's just not my style but i have uh, when i was younger you know i go to italian friends and their mom would hug you and kiss you on both cheeks and i think that there's just more and i use italians because that's what i can relate to i think they're just more emotionally invested in a lot of things compared to 
our hard ass approach and I don't know how to flower that up, but it's, it's just not the same from where I sit. What if Canada, um, what if Canada yeah. Dawn was to win? What about people who live here now, maybe even not as a first generation, as children of immigrants or grandchildren of immigrants, but have that familial tie, that historic family tie to the old country? Do you think that th- those people would cry if the old country won or not cry if Canada won? Or do you think it would be the same for both? I think they'd be more apt to be more emotionally invested. I mean, in World Cups in the past, you can see in Hamilton and Toronto when uh, Portugal was playing, uh, Italy was playing, their favorite restaurants would be jam. And they would be far more emotional than any bar you would have went into when Canada was playing, albeit we didn't win anything. But I don't think anybody walked out of the bar crying because we got beat. Now, the bar was pretty low. There wasn't a lot of expectations. But if you get what I'm saying, like even before we were really engaged in, and, well, we hadn't played in it since you wore short pants. But I just, the Portuguese bars, the Italian bars, the Dutch, where the Dutch would go to have a beer, I, I don't think anything we do compares to that, even here. I, I think they get it or are into it far more than us anyway. Yeah, I, I, I can't disagree with that when you when you see the reaction. Now, you know what's going to be so fascinating in four years when some of the World Cup games yeah. are here? It's in North America. Uh, we know that Canada is going to be in the World Cup. There is a, I mean, the, 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 the countries that we drew against to play, I don't know how many Belgian immigrants there are in Hamilton. Uh, I don't think there's a ton of Moroccan immigrants in Canada. I know there are a bunch of Croatian people uh, in Canada, in Hamilton. But next time, when when Canada is playing against one of those countries, what do you do if you're from one of those countries, especially if you're not a first generation? I, I, I completely understand if I had, Don, if I had to move from Canada to pick wherever else in the world. I mean, that doesn't really matter. But if I had to do that, I would still consider myself Canadian. My, I would still cheer for the country yeah. I had moved to, but I would be Canadian. So, uh, but if I, it, I would not necessarily, if I had to move to say Brazil, I wouldn't expect my kids or my grandkids to feel the same way towards Canada that I do because they weren't from here. But when that no, happens in, that... in, in four years, when Canada plays, let's say we play, let's say, and this is always the one that everyone waits for. Let's say Canada plays Italy. Should the people be on James street cheering for Italy or cheering for Canada? Or does it matter to you? I, well, I think, uh, I think they should cheer who, for who they want to, but it would be, I don't know. I, I know an awful lot of second and third generation Italians, I think, would probably cheer, cheer for Canada as long as their uh, grandparents weren't around. <laughs> um, yeah. Like if, 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 you, if you think back on previous World Cups, the, uh, the, the people that buy those little flags and stick them in their windshield or on their side windows in, on cars and drive around town with them. I mean, there's... You know, every not every car's got one, but I'm always astonished at how many different flags there are going uh, on cars during the World Cup. So, but I think, I think perhaps a lot of that 
is because we're not in it. That's right. It's Canada easy. It's easy. It's been an option. It's easy because you haven't had to worry about Canada being part of it. And I, it will be very interesting. Like, I, I don't know what the, the way it breaks down and everything else. I don't know if Canada could end up playing against one of the countries that we have most people in this country from. I, I don't know if that's the case. Uh, but I, I think there would be some... I think there would be, Don, some sour people. I, I truly do. If all of a sudden people drove down James Street or down in Toronto in Little Italy or wherever else and Canada was playing Italy, and I'm just using Italy as an example. Pick another country if you want. It doesn't really matter. If Canada's playing another country and in Canada the people are by masses cheering for the other country, I think there will be some people who would be sour about that. Uh, I don't disagree. I And I don't. Actually, I don't know where that should fall. Um, you know, I am a kind of a when in Rome do as the Romans, but uh, it's it's not always that case. And I think you're going to see a fair amount of Italian flags. And oh, absolutely, you know, I'd be okay with that. And, and I and uh, yeah, and I and I certainly um, I think most people, I think a lot of people this time, obviously had were rooting for Canada, but had a second option. And unless you were Croatian. You, that never became an issue. They never played against any other, you know, country that had a lot of immigrants from that country here. It's an interesting one. And I, you know, I, you're right. It doesn't really matter who you cheer for, but I do think that it will be a sour point if it turns out that there's a lot of people in some group cheering against Canada. I think that, I think that would be a bit of a sour point. Uh, one thing I want to say about, go ahead, go ahead. I, I, I think uh, in this area, we're conditioned to having a, a plan B when it comes to sporting events because there's an awful lot of Toronto Maple Leaf fans, and that doesn't work real <laughs> yeah. well if you plan on watching the second round of the playoffs. So we're kind of conditioned for that. I will. Uh, one thing I would say about this World Cup, I loved the game yesterday. Uh, it was a terrific game. Lots of, I mean, six goals was great. I mean, I, you know, I... I I want to be able to appreciate, I'm not, I'm like you, I'm not a diehard soccer fan. I'm not someone who lives every weekend for soccer, but for the World Cup, for the Euros, I'll watch. But I don't necessarily find the same joy in a nil-nil or zero-zero draw that I would in a game like this, where there was scoring. It was great. Uh, it was very exciting. Wow. There was lots going on. There was lots of drama. The best players were the best players, which is something they always say. The one thing, Don, and I know that people who are diehard soccer fans are going to hate me for saying this. That's fine. The one thing that still drove me nuts about this game, (laughs) among the 99 great things, get up off the field and stop rolling around and acting like you've been shot whenever there's a tiny bit of contact. It, I'm sorry, maybe it's just I'm brought up as a Canadian. It drives me insane still. It seems to be part of the show. And some of it isn't even good acting. Like what they should do is bring in a penalty uh, for unsportsmanlike conduct. You can do that in hockey. Yeah. Always use a hockey analogy. But if you take a dive in hockey trying to draw a penalty and it's a load of crap, you know what? You get two minutes for trying to make a travesty of the game. And if they brought that into soccer... I think you'd clean it up. 100% you would. 100%. And Don, look, we have now in the World Cup, we saw this happen several times. I saw it in the Canada game at least once, 
where the game was about to go on again and the referee got a call down from the r- officials in the replay in the VAR booth saying, hey, you got to check that. That was a, a penalty or we want to look at this or the ball may have crossed the line or offside, whatever. They went to VAR, video-assisted refereeing, many, many times in this tournament. Why could you not have the same thing? That if the, it, when, when someone goes down and gets tackled, why could the officials in the replay booth not take a quick look? And if that person didn't really get touched or embellished or threw themselves to the ground, why could you not call down and say number 15 in white gets a, a yellow card? It would be gone so fast if you did that. Oh, it would clean it up. And I find that, I find that interesting because you're not a big fan of video replay on anything, but. But if you're going to use right, it, think- if you're going to use it anyway. Yeah, no, if you, no, I agree. If, you're, if it's in the game, and it is in the game now, whether we like it or not, use it to full advantage to make the game better. I think that would, but they have to come up with a penalty. Well, that's, there's no penalty for faking it. That's right. So you give someone, you give out yellow cards freely for these embellishments. I mean, or, or maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's, Maybe it's something else. I don't know. But Don, there was a, a, a collision yesterday and I use the word lightly. It was a collision. Nobody did anything on purpose. They both went for the ball and they collided. And you would have thought both guys had just had a cinder block dropped on their chest. And I'm thinking, what do they think when they're watching hockey or American football and see guys collide, like really collide with intent and bounce right back up and get right back into the play? Like one of them was a, a, a graze and one of them is a full on collision. And how come the guys who get collided with can get up and keep going? Uh, it, it's, it's the one thing. The game yesterday was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful game. I don't want to take away from it. It's just get up off the field. It's enough. Well, because we were raised with a guy getting a, a, a stick under the eye or a stick on the chin and going in and missing two shifts because he was getting stitched up and comes back out and plays again. Basketball is only marginally better. They carry those guys off like they've been shot, too. Right? Pardon me, hockey players? They just, you know, six stitches, they just shake it off. Lose the tooth? All right, pick it up. You know, I'll take it to the dentist in the morning when I go in after I have a beer. Who was the guy who played for so, the Flyers, Lapierre or something like that, who st- in the playoffs stopped a slap shot with his face? And had all like of his front yeah. teeth knocked out, and his nose was stuck to the side of his cheek. And he came out two shifts later and kept playing. And even his teammates were like, "Are, are you? You're goofy. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. that's not normal to do that. It's um, yeah. It, it just it, it to me it's to me it just it it's a blemish. And, and I know I remember hearing one time someone say, you know, it's part of the opera of the game. And it's like, well, that's a bad part of the opera of the game. We don't need that stuff for the game to be great. And you want to know something? Watch the women's game. You, you see it far, far, far less in the women's game. It's just not part of the culture of that game. A few teams, but not most. It's possible well, to do it with that. Women, in my mind, are tougher than men, so that yep. makes some sense to me. But it's possible. My point is it's possible to play the game without it. It's not like it's into the DNA oh. of the fabric of the game. You can get tackled. And if you're really hurt, you go down. But if you get up, what if, what if you made someone do like, and we got to take a break here. What if you had, like you have in football, if you stay down, so the play has to stop, you have to leave the game for a certain number of plays. So you have to leave the field for two minutes, let's say. 
make it 10 and everybody will get up. <laughs> You're not wrong. Don, I don't know if you, we may have talked about this a year or two ago or whenever, I don't know, it may have come up before, but after watching the Buffalo Bills game on Saturday and having the snow arrive in the fourth quarter, I love when football ends up with weather. I, I, I know they always try to keep, for example, the Super Bowl in a place where there's going to be no weather at all, whether it's in a dome or somewhere else. I love when football has the elements of weather thrown into it to add an extra level of difficulty and uncertainty and whatever else. Are, are you a weather guy or are you, you know, let's keep this clean and have the best possible action we can? No, I don't think, uh, especially, well, um, almost any sport, right? I mean, I went to um, watch the Leafs play Detroit at, at, at Michigan in the state, big stadium, holds 103,000 people. It snowed the whole friggin' game. I mean, it must have snowed a foot. We we were planning to come home after the game and had to get a motel two miles away because there was no way we were getting out. The whole game was played in snow. And I'm not sure that was much fun for the players, but it sure was an interesting process to witness and sit through. Um, and if, you know, I'm a little disappointed that Buffalo actually moved the one game to Detroit. They only had six and a half feet of snow. That one might have <laughs> yeah. been more interesting than any of them to see. But no, I think it adds a, a degree of um, curiosity. And sometimes you see just truly how great these athletes can be. I mean, the World Cup had outstanding athletes. The NFL has outstanding athletes. All pro sports do. But they have to take it up a notch. And they have to get creative. They, they can't do right. things they would normally do. So to be successful, you have to figure out how to do the elements. It was, I think it was 137 years ago, um, the Ice Bowl, I believe, in Toronto, where they put staples through the bottom of their shoes to get a grip. Now, that would have been a lot of fun if the guy stepped on your hand, I'm sure. But... Uh, you know, it just adds a different element once in a while. I don't think I want to see the Buffalo Bills play in a blizzard every week, but at least they don't cancel the games and it create it's creativity and it's kind of fun. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. And I, I think that that you're right. The creativity side that you can plan and coaches do heaven knows NFL coaches have literally planned for every eventuality, every eventuality. But the one thing you can't plan for is what happens if the snow starts blowing in sideways. Because we don't know which way it's going to come. We don't know if we're going into the snow or the wind or away from the snow. We don't know if it's going to stick or whatever. I think that just requires everybody to abandon their game plan a little bit and see what you can do when everything is not prepped already. I love that. Well, I do too. And I don't think they plan for every eventuality they may. I don't think Bill Belichick planned on the eventuality that he witnessed at the end of the game yesterday. <laughs> no, no. Well, no, I, I don't think that Bill Belichick, quite honestly, called that play. I don't think, I, I mean, I'll give, I think Bill Belichick is a pretty good coach, uh, which is sort of an understatement of all time. I don't think he had put that play into the playbook for that thing. I think he's standing on the sidelines. And anyone who didn't see this, it, it's one of the wackiest plays in NFL history ever. <laughs> I think he's standing on the sideline, not only infuriated, but going, what in the, what are you doing? Like, just incredulous that a player could be that I would, dumb. I don't think that's anywhere near what he was actually saying, but I know it's a radio show. <laughs> I am paraphrasing what was going through Bill Belichick's yeah. mind. Um, yeah, it, it was, for those who didn't see it, it was, the, the Patriots were tied with the, uh, with the Raiders, 
They've got the ball on the last play of the game. It's going to go to overtime. The Patriots decide they're going to suddenly go into the Stanford marching band formation and start lateraling the ball all over the place. They could have just gone overtime. And then the one lateral is 15 yards through the air. It's a blimp. It's so that the it was the lateral was intercepted and run back for a winning touchdown. It was just it was bonkers. Um, you're right. I, I don't think that and Bill Belichick was, had planned there, for that. There were no Patriots near the last one. They were only Raiders. So they had. When you look at the replay, the Patriots actually could have had the advantage because it was about six Raiders behind them. And then they thought it'd be a good idea. Why don't we just throw it to them and see if they like it? <laughs> and then they waltz into the end zone untouched, and Bill Belichick is on the sidelines like an old potbelly stove heated up so bad the lids are flying off of it. It was fun to watch. Anyway, the weather's good. That wasn't weather-related, but it was rather funny. The, I would be, I'm with you, that I would have, if it was feasible, and I don't believe that that previous snow game in Buffalo was feasible, not when you've got six and a half feet of snow. I mean, the, I remember reading something that there were only four players on the Buffalo roster who would not have completely been covered by snow. In that last one that, you know, so it was, it was not a realistic situation, but even if it was two or three feet of snow, why not? I mean, even the one in Miami earlier in the year where it was so hot that players were collapsing, you know, it's, it's elements. It's something that you have to deal with. that's different. I, I, I have no problem if there's an absolute torrential downpour. That's fine too. What, whatever. It just, it makes the game unique because you can't prep for everything. I think it was the last game, the last Grey Cup at Iverwind Stadium when, you know, it was the one they were having trouble selling tickets for and it started to snow and they had uh, yep. shovels out there. And 1996. So, yeah, so you could see the 10, 15, and just so you had some perspective of where the, Hell, the 10, 15, 20, and 30. That was kind of fun to watch. So I get it. I sure agree. it was. It, it, that's, it, Don, if, if it had not snowed that day in 1996 when the game was played at Iverwind Stadium, what else would we remember about that game? Probably not very much. No. That's no, what we remember. That's what we yeah. remember. That made it memorable, 100%. 100%. I, I, I say I'd... I would have no problem if they had a Super Bowl in Buffalo or a Super Bowl in Green Bay. They tried one in New York. It was it was fine, well, but I why why not why not deal with some snow? It's well, okay. Well, I'll tell you why not. Or at least, well, I'll tell you why not because I'm sure I'm right. Uh, that that is the biggest sponsorship event and schmooze event on the planet. It's the party, and it's a big party, and the football games just happens to take place. Uh, and they're not doing that in Buffalo and Green Bay and having their outdoor concerts and having their outdoor activities in Green Bay if it's 32 below zero. They're not putting their sponsors through that. So I think it's more sponsor-driven. I don't think they're all that worried about the conditions of the field. I mean, you could actually play it in Buffalo, right? Can't get can't get much colder during February 12th than it's going to be January 12th. I can tell you that in Buffalo. But where do you run those activities, right? So I think if you look at the configuration of the stadium, where it is, proximity, that has a lot to do with it. I don't know if it's the elements they try and stay away from. Uh, Well, it is the elements, but it's not for the game. It's for the sponsors and the fans and all the other stuff that goes on. 
Let me just go back for a minute here till we got to take a break. Let me go back for a minute to that Patriots play. You've coached a lot of sports over the years. I don't know. Now, I'm not suggesting you've ever had a player do something that dumb, but I'm sure that somewhere along the way, a player has done something absolutely stupid that you had no expectation that player was going to do, and there was no way you could have prepared because who knew he was going to do that? What do you do in the dressing room afterwards? Do you walk in and just go, I'm not even going to look at you, or do you look at the guy and go, what were you thinking, or do you scream at the person? Well, the the screaming is sometimes determined on the magnitude of the blunder. I mean, it's going to cost you a championship. Well, first of all, I wouldn't scream at him because that's not going to do any good, but I can tell you I've walked into the room within the last five years and looked at the guy and said, what were you thinking? And before he answers, I go, that's a redundant question. (laughs) Yep. And you got to lighten the room up, right? It's always nice when something really dumb like that happens and it really doesn't have any consequence to the result of the game. Mm-mm. The one yesterday <laughs> cost them a shot to win the game. I mean, if it was if it was 22 to 2 at that point in time, it's just real funny. But New England could have used the win and it was just a bonehead and it wasn't one. There was two or three of them. Yep. yep. What were they thinking? Uh, Don, the I'll tell you I'll tell you. I'll tell you a story as we go to a break here. So my first year, as as you know, um, I for many years was one of the best goalies in probably Canada, maybe all of the world. I mean, I really it was it was it's stunning that I'm not in the NHL even now. But um, well, a bit better on on a good day. On a good day, go but my first or second year as a kid, I was either seven or eight when I was playing. My coach at the time, lovely man. Terry Adair, still remember him. He's a very lovely man, very nice guy. Um, the other team iced the puck, and Terry Adair from the bench was yelling, let it go, let it go, thinking I was going to try and touch it and stop the icing. Of course, it went right into the middle of the net. <laughs> and I'm like, you're telling me to let it go. I'm going to let it go. Um, that was one <laughs> That was one where I could look over and go, why were you telling me to let it go? And he all he could do was go, yeah, that one's on me. <laughs> Yeah, this this doesn't make any sense, but I'll let it go. Hey, you got to listen to your coach, right? That's what I was always taught. Listen to your coach. Well, it was um, uh, he was on a bad angle, apparently. <laughs> Don, we have uh, tonight. There is a pre-tournament game, an exhibition game for Canada with the World Juniors, which starts on Boxing Day. Uh, the World Juniors has been in a bit of a weird spot lately because there was COVID that messed things up a bit, and there was then the whole Hockey Canada thing that really mess things up a bit. And I'm wondering if it has got its momentum back. Are you as excited at this point as you are looking forward to it as much as you normally would be? Or is the World Juniors taking a bit of a step back in your mind from everything that's happened recently? No, I, I don't think the, the on-ice product, uh, and I think people will get past some of the other things. I mean, they've had enough time now they do have a new board. The timing is important, right? So there's been a new board selected. Uh, I don't know if any of the sponsors are back on track yet. It'll be interesting to see if the boards are just white or only have Tom Choice Realty on them. Uh, but I, I don't think it's probably going to be in the dumps. Like the thing in the summertime in Edmonton, when there weren't enough people there to have a game of bridge, uh, I think that was a bit of a kick in the 
in the groin. Uh, but I, I think out east, I mean, they don't have it there very often. It's going to be a wonderful opportunity. So I think the crowds are going to be fine, and I think the products will be fine. And I'm, I'm sure they're hoping that this is a bounce-back event for them. And if it is, everything will be fine if Hockey Canada carry on and are transparent and do all the things they say they're going to do. Well, this would seemingly have to be because, uh, again, you've got it in Canada, you've got it out east in Halifax and Moncton where they don't have NHL, so there's a love for junior hockey and a burning desire for this level, and like everything would seem to be lined up that this should be a huge success. If it's, if it's not here at this time, I think there would be an awful lot of red flags. Yeah, it's going to create, you're right, it, it, well, that's why I say a East Coast. I mean, they, I suspect, will embrace it uh, greatly, but we'll have to see if it doesn't work. I don't know where it does work. Like, you know, it, it should be, they should wrap their arms around it down there, and, and I, I think they will, but if they don't, you're right. It's There's going to be a lot more challenges than Hockey Canada would like. Well, where do you put it then? I mean, Toronto, the last time in Toronto it wasn't great. Uh, that was the Toronto Montreal back to back sharing thing. That was not a huge hit, uh, as you say. Edmonton. Now the time, a lot of things conspired against that one. But Edmonton, it was a disaster. Uh, the last time I think out in Vancouver was not enormous. I mean, the East Coast is right now, and then probably some smaller towns that could do it. If you put it in London, it would probably be fine. But like, the, if there are there are limited, you would have thought at one time that you could have put this anywhere and it would have been a huge success. Now you've got to pick your spots a little bit more. Well, and and one of the challenges with uh, London and even the East Coast are they can't get eighteen thousand people. I mean, I think they were it was planned to go to the East Coast and not it's going to the East Coast, but that's just to spread it across Canada. They want 18,000, 20,000 people. I don't think the numbers work as well if you have to put it in London. When you have to put it in maximum 10,000-seat venues, and one of the other challenges are, is are they, they're starting to price themselves off the planet. That's a problem. And, and now is no time to offer discounts when you haven't got any sponsors. Talking about uh, an awkward situation, boy, I... I, I for Hockey Canada and the game's sake, I hope it goes really well. So, I will be watching. So it's in Halifax. The, the It's Halifax and Moncton. Halifax Arena is about 10,000, and it's the bigger one. Moncton's about eight, something like that. So it's going to be less than it would be other places. Uh, to answer your other question, the, the highlights are on right now from the first period, and it appears anyway that the boards are once again filled with ads. Now, what does that mean? Because ultimately they're going to make sure they sell for whatever they can. They don't want to have nothing coming in. So who knows if they got full price for those like they would have 10 years ago. Uh, I, it just somehow, Dawn, it feels, and, and I don't, again, I don't know if it's the COVID thing and the Hockey Canada thing or whatever. It, it feels to me like just not quite the same as it was six years ago, seven years ago, eight years ago when it was the kind of event when Everybody was talking about it and everyone looked forward to Boxing Day and everybody was geeked up about it. I, I, I just don't have that quite that same feeling right now. Well, I think I, it clearly is the same event, um, but it's, I mean, it's had some challenges. It's uh, t- to suggest that the World Junior Tournament and the entire process of the elite program 
hasn't been tarnished a little bit is foolhardy. I mean, it, it has been tarnished, but it can come back. And it, I, I think it will come back, and I think it will all be fine. But this is the real first real test uh, of the World Juniors being back during Christmas week, starting on Boxing Day, the thing that we're all used to. Um, there was a lot of events in Edmonton in the summertime that were a real challenge, right? Okay. But so this, one, this, one's, this one's traditional, and I think it'll be fine. So to make it fine, as you said, how much pressure is there on Canada's team to make sure you're at least in the gold medal game? Uh, same as before. You don't Maybe think even more? more? Yeah, see, I would think, I well, would think more. Well, I, I think I, I don't think the pressure is any different on the kids, but I think there's pressure on the on the organizers of the event, and they get no more say in the on ice product than we do, <laughs> right? I mean, I think there's a lot of pressure on Hockey Canada to to be in the gold medal game and win the gold medal, uh, but the people that put those pressure on themselves and the pressure that it's on, they don't have any control over it. I mean, the team's been picked, the coaches have been picked. Right, so now you just let the games play. But you think the new board and everybody else don't want to start off, you know, twenty twenty three with a gold medal? Of course they do. And would it help? It'd be wonderful. I, I was out there in St. John's for the uh, Memorial Cup when the Bulldogs were out there in June. I think it was <laughs> May or June. I can't remember what month now. I think it was June. And the fact that the St. John Ice Dogs, Sea Dogs, whatever they are, what are they? The St. John. Whatever they are, the team out there. It's it's that time of night. I'm I'm there's you know what the problem is? There's too many hockey teams with ice dogs, sea dogs, lake dogs, whatever dogs. I get them all mixed up. Anyway, the St. John team was great. They ended up winning the Memorial Cup. It was so impactful that the home team did well as far as keeping the party atmosphere going, keeping the festival going, keeping everyone intrigued. If they had been blown out in their first three games, totally different scenario for how they're viewed and how that tournament is viewed. I, I really think that for Canada, they've got to do well in this just to get that feeling back about World Juniors. We'll see. You know what? I, I, I just put the game on. There are report ads. They're Halifax, yep. Hockey Nova Scotia, Moncton, IAHF, and Canadian flags. You, they're not... It's not the Canadian tires, the Nikes of the world, and and the rest of the game. They're 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 not there. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, so now uh, it might be a different venue, but uh, they're not there right now. And it is the Sea Dogs, by the way. Which uh, thank you to Ben for doing the research. I ha- I don't know how you forget that, but again, too many dog teams, and the Bulldogs, of oh, course. Uh, Don Robertson, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this, Scott. Thank you and. Give me one second to say uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and Happy New Year if we're not back next week. I don't know. And uh, I enjoy doing this, and I want to wish everybody I know to listen to a happy holiday. Absolutely. Thank you, Don. You as well. Thanks a lot, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.